Open your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. What is the, a proper place for a king to dwell when I, when I think of, of a kingly estate, I think of this massive palace behind a big heavy door with a, with a, strong, a strong lock on it so that you know, not just anyone can come in. I, I think of guards roaming the halls you know, to protect all the people inside the palace against intruders. I think of big walls surrounding the the perimeter, so that just that no one can just drop by unannounced. Everyone is screened. No one just stops by because they happen to be in the neighborhood. The king has to live in the most secure place imaginable. He has to dwell in security. The more palatial the house is, the more it communicates to the world that this country is prosperous, its citizens are well off, and that this kingdom will be successful. I mean, think about it. This is the reason, or at least part of the reason, that kings and presidents and and world leaders and people like that live in such large houses, isn't it? Such nice places. It has to say something about the land over which they rule. It's a prestigious land. How would you react, if you just think about it for just a second, if you were to travel to a country and you were to see the king of of that country and he was approachable, that you could just walk up to him and shake his hand and there were no guards or anything like that? Think if he he lived just in the midst of, of everybody, his house was not much different than any one of our houses, modest and things like that. What if he cut his own grass? Could you imagine a, a, a leader, a head of state that, that mowed his own yard? Uh, you might think that he was down to earth at first, but you certainly wouldn't walk away thinking, well, this place is one of the world's powers. This, this place is, is on, this, on the world's discussion. This, is, this, is, this place has some, has some political sway and is a serious player as far as the world is concerned. I don't think you'd walk away feeling that way. This morning we turn to a passage and a story most of us are all too familiar with. A story that is certainly very odd. This is the birth of the one that we heard about in the previous chapter in Luke's Gospel. We talked briefly about it last week. This is the one, remember, that we read where Zechariah had prophesied that, the, that one would come that was going to be the horn from the line of David. One that would deliver us from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve Him without fear. A, a kingly figure, a strong man that would come in and conquer the enemy, a rabble-rouser that was coming to pick a fight with those who were in rule. That's the one we read about last week, right? And where would this king be born? Where would this kind of strong man, this fighter, this conqueror be born? Is he born in a palace behind this thick door and inside these walls with these lookout towers and security cameras and snipers on the roof? No. In a stable. 
No guards, no security cameras. In fact, he's approached by a, a group of shepherds in the area. Quite the opposite. And I think it bears mentioning, in case we've forgotten, that this baby that's born in this chapter is the maker of the moon. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Gospel of John tells us all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the eternal Son, through whom all things were made, has taken on flesh in this passage that we're about to read, and has become human. But the way that he goes about it communicates a lot about the kind of kingdom that he is coming to establish. And so with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. We're going to spend most of the time this morning in Luke 2, 1-7, but I'm going to read the whole section all the way to verse 21 because I'm going to make reference to it throughout the sermon. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one of one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for, they, they all, they had, for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of, the, of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, a lot has been made over the years about the birth of Jesus. Everywhere you look, Around this time, you're going to see manger scenes. You're going to see shepherd and shepherds and magi. You're going to see Mary and Joseph and lambs and, and goats and various other kinds of, of animals. And for many in this world, the manger scene is this soft and delicate picture. It has a, has a warmth to it that most people, um, except perhaps the truly bitter, uh, really get behind. I mean, who hates a little baby, right? When you look at the scene, doesn't it make you just 
kind of warm inside when you see that picture of them underneath the stable. I think any, even many in this world that have no desire for the things of God look at the manger scene and, and they see this innocent depiction of a little baby whose poor teenage mother traveled a long way and after searching for a place to have this child found no place and was forced to have this kid in a cold, dark barn. Now, unlike the scene at Easter, when we see this same baby, grown up, bloody and broken on the cross, and ultimately buried and raised from the dead on the third day, the manger scene has a seeming softness to it, has an innocence to it, makes even the hardest atheist say, aw, right? But that's mainly because they don't understand what's happening in the birth of Christ. And that's not entirely their fault, because many in the church don't understand what's happening in the birth of Christ either. So why does Luke tell us this story? Why does he give us this story? There are four Gospels. He's the only one that gives us this story. Is it to warm our hearts and make us feel all ooey-gooey on the inside? I don't think so. When you read the Bible... Please do so assuming that every story and all the details of the story have a purpose in the story. And so the details about the birth of Christ tell us something really important about Christ's overall mission and the reason for the incarnation. And I want to point out two this morning. The first is that Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus is a different kind of king. Now Luke sets up the scene of the birth of the Christ child in our passage this morning by telling us the time frame when this took place. What does he say? He says it was during the reign of Caesar Augustus. So here is Caesar Augustus by his decree. In other words, this is his policy by virtue of his policy. He's forcing Joseph and his bride-to-be, Mary, to return to his hometown to be counted. And most likely this is done for taxation purposes. The Romans want to know who it is that they can tax. So Caesar does a census, much like we do today. However, there are some important, very important historical events that when we're made aware of them, it makes the passage make a lot more sense. It's helpful to know that Caesar Augustus thought very highly of himself and he required other people to think very highly of him as well. There was a discovery made in a city called Helicarnassus, which is a city off the coast of Asia Minor. And it had, there's an inscription that was found there, and it's on display in the British Museum. You can go there and you can read this inscription yourself if you read Greek. Uh, and it says, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fill, fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good and at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present, which fills all men, so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Interesting. 
There's another inscription that is, has also been found that hails Augustus, Caesar Augustus, as a god whose birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world, of the gospel for the world. Augustus is described throughout history as the Son of God, the maker of peace, the bringer of goodwill to men, and good news to the world. Where have I heard that before? What we cannot forget when we read the Bible is that there are a thousand different details the author could give us. John tells us the books of the world couldn't hold all the things done of Christ. So they, they pick and they choose specific ones to tell us. Why is Luke bringing these to the surface? And it becomes clear that Jesus' birth and then the claims made about Him at the announcement of His birth to the shepherds in the field are meant to create a battle between these two individuals, between Caesar Augustus and Jesus the Christ. And it should raise the question in our mind as we read this, who is the real king? Who has the real authority here? Luke records the timing of this event in relation to Augustus, whom we should remember is called the Son of God, maker of peace, bringer of goodwill to men and good news to the world. Now, as far as timing goes, there's also a problem that we see in verse 2. And the reason that I'm going to bring this up is because I've had conversations with people who, are, who don't believe in the Scripture and use this verse, verse 2, as one of the chief reasons. And so I want to explain what's happening here as a means of, of really help to us in understanding the timeline when this is taking place. There's a problem here in verse 2 that I think is more of a problem for modern audiences than it was for Luke's original audience. But there in verse 2, he says, this was, for the, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So that means, if that's right, then that means that Jesus was born sometime between 6 and 7 A.D. Now think about that for just a second. Quirinius was governor for one year, 6 to 7 A.D. And so that would mean that Jesus was born, since it was during Quirinius' reign as governor, uh, between 6 and 7 A.D. The problem is, in the previous chapter, Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, which is also what Matthew tells us, is that Jesus' birth was during the reign of King Herod of Judea. Well, Herod died in 4 B.C., so that's nearly a decade before Quirinius was ever even governor. So about a decade separated Herod and Quirinius's governorship. And so this either means a couple of things. It means either Luke was wrong when he remembers his history, since he doesn't remember the correct date of Quirinius's being governor, or perhaps Luke is an idiot because he contradicted himself only one chapter previously when he put Jesus' birth under Herod's rule. Either way, it doesn't seem like it's good news for Luke. Well, first of all, let's, let's address this. I don't think Luke misremembers when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the reason is because Quirinius instituted a census in 6 to 7 AD when he was governor. But that census ended up sparking a revolt amongst the Jews that ultimately led to the destruction of the temple 64 years later. 
So it's not like Luke and the people around just forget when this kind of thing takes place. In fact, Luke writes about that census in Acts 5.37. He cites Gimaliel having been... He quotes Gimaliel talking about that census. Everyone remembered that census. It was a big deal. It would be like saying September 11th, 1991. Getting it off by a decade. You just didn't do that. Not any serious historian. They kept records. He would have known, I would think. Further in verse 2, Luke calls it, look at what verse 2 says. Luke calls it the first registration. This was the first registration. That would imply that there were others during Quirinius' rule, but he only ruled one year. You can't do multiple censuses in one year, nor is it necessary to do multiple censuses in a year. So there weren't any other censuses taken by Quirinius. But that doesn't mean that the issue is easy to solve either and to figure out exactly what Luke is saying. There are about a hundred different proposals. Some range from the absolutely crazy to some the, the plausible of what Luke is trying to say here. But I think what makes the most sense of the, the way this verse should be translated, it should probably say something more like this was the registration before when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, some of you will even have a note in your Bibles that will make reference to this possible alternative translation. Now, one reason why that translation is not in there, instead of the one that probably is there, in your, the one that we read, is because it is a little bit grammatically strange whenever it's, it's, it's phrased that way. But I think it makes the most sense of the information that we have. Luke is saying here, in other words, I know you're probably thinking, I know what's probably in your mind, is the census under the reign of Quirinius as governor. But I'm not talking about that census. I'm talking about a census that happened 10 years before it under Caesar Augustus. This was the registration before when Quirinius was governor, since everybody would be thinking about that census instead. But what that means then is that Luke is drawing our attention away from Quirinius's censorship uh, census and all the way back to Caesar Augustus census. A census that took place under his rule and that was implemented under, under, his, under his reign. And according to the angels then, it's not Caesar Augustus who is the Son of God, who is the maker of peace, who is the bringer of goodwill to men, who is giving good news to the world. It's Jesus the Christ who is doing that. So this is a sign to us, the, the reader, of the claim that Luke is making and wants us to see about this child that's being born. The, the birth of Christ is a sign to those who are in authority that the end of your reign is at hand. And so we see this proclamation of the angels to the shepherds in a different light of what they're actually saying when we see what they're saying it against. That here Caesar Augustus has been, has been attributed to how all these titles have been attributed to him. But I'm telling you, one who is born in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths, he should, he's the one that should have those titles. This is a battle against the ongoing narrative that you've heard about Caesar Augustus. Augustus is claiming to be the son of Zeus as is evident by the palace that he dwells in and the, the walls that protect him, the power that he has. He's claiming to be the bringer of peace because he's conquered all his enemies with the Roman army and he subjugated them to slave labor. 
Augustus is claiming to bring goodwill to men and hope for the future because of the wealth and the success of the Roman Empire. It means the security for its citizens. Where is the Roman Empire today? Now when I think of Caesar Augustus, when I think of a king, Caesar Augustus fits the bill. He's the prototype. But Jesus is a different kind of king. He is the Son of God because only God Himself could save His people from their sins. He is the bringer of peace because through His death He makes peace between God and man. He claims goodwill with those with whom He is pleased because He alone is capable of delivering to His people eternal life. But can I confess something to you? Sometimes my heart is a little disappointed with that king. I think most of the Jews in the Gospels are disappointed with this kind of king too. Look at the problems I've got. I'm afraid this, this whole meek and mild thing isn't going to cut it, Jesus. You see these enemies? I need you to drive them out. That's what we really need right now. You to drive these people out. And we need you to be the strong man. We need you to be that kind of ruler. That's what most of the people in the Jewish community around the time of the Gospels are thinking. This is the kind of king we need. We need someone to come along and be the strong man. To drive out the Roman army. You think the Romans are scared of a little baby in a horse trough? I don't think so. Far too often I'm right there with them. Oh, Jesus, can we just, can we just hurry up with this revelation thing? We just drive out these enemies of mine? You hear people scoffing at what I believe? Do you see this cancer that's raging in people's bodies? The reason that my sinful heart wants the strong man is because I don't believe ultimately that my biggest problem is my own sin. I believe it's everyone and everything else. Those are my biggest problems. Those are the things that I really have to worry about. I need a strong man to come in and drag those things out. It's not me. It's not my own sin. Surely not. But the reason Jesus is a different kind of king is because he's precisely the kind of king we needed. One that comes to live as we live and yet without sin. So that on the cross, He might go to battle with our greatest enemy and there win. The incarnation of the Son of God is an indictment on the human race. Because if, if He had come as the strong man with walls and His palace, we would be the ones on the outside. Instead, he came as a different kind of king that he might welcome his people in. The birth of Jesus is an indictment on me. If Jesus came in the Augustus-type king first to drive out the enemy, I'd be the one he drove out. Well, surely it would be the 
scoffer and the atheist and the drunkard and the reviler and the swindler. Surely it would be them, right? Not me. Be them too. Be them too. Be all of us. We're among them. We would be driven out. You can just see the disciples in the gospel asking Jesus, okay, Jesus, when are you gonna when are you gonna mount your, your army and, and drive these people out? When are you gonna when are you gonna be that strong? When are you gonna conquer all these people? To which Jesus could only respond. What makes you think you would be on the inside of the walls? Jesus is a different kind of king. Second thing I want you to see. Citizens of Christ's kingdom are a different kind of people. Citizens of Christ's kingdom are a different kind of people. Okay, so he's a different kind of king. But his birth also speaks volumes about the kind of people he came to reach. First, look at the parents that he's born to in verses 4 and 5. We know that Mary and Joseph were unwed and she's pregnant. Most likely she's very young, probably even in her teen years, as young as maybe even 15 or 16. So her being pregnant outside of marriage, they're already among the rejected and the despised. And so the natural assumption for anyone looking on would be that this child was illegitimate. Second, look at the circumstances that he's born into in verses 6 and 7. They've been traveling this long way to Bethlehem and they finally reach the city. However, it's very obvious that they don't have any relatives in the city. If they did, they would be staying with those relatives. Further, no one in the town of Bethlehem actually takes them into their home. Which could mean either the amount of people coming into the town of Bethlehem was so much that it just broke the boundaries of hospitality. Nobody could hold any more people in their homes anymore, which would be common back then. Or, simply because of her pregnancy, no one wanted to. Either way, they end up searching for a vacant room to stay, and the only one that's available is a barn. Now, I know the image that's going on in your mind, because I've got the same image. Here's this sweet little couple in, under a barn, up on a hill, with a star over it, right? And they're kind of all alone out there in, in the wilderness, we're all influenced by Hallmark cards, you can tell. But a setup of a first century house or, or an inn would have been something more like a two-story structure, two-story or more, or more uh, structure, where the ground level would have been the area where they would keep the animals. they bring the, the animals in at night and, and house them there. And, uh, and then it would be under where the second floor or any other floor above that where the people would sleep. And so they're probably on the first floor, essentially, of this house, or the basement floor, maybe you might say, of this house. Or it could be perhaps even a lean-to on the side of this, of this inn. But there he is placed in a feeding trough that's used for horses and animals and all kinds of other things. All right? Now third, look at the group in the following passage that hears about the birth of Jesus in verses 8 and following. They're shepherds. Now I don't think these shepherds were necessarily outcasts in society, but they certainly were commoners. They were your average Joe. It wasn't necessarily this terrible profession to be in, but the income would have been average to below average. And so in Matthew we see the noble magi coming to 
give praise to this Christ child. But here in Luke, he doesn't talk about the Magi. He keys in on the average, everyday shepherds watching their flocks at night. But wait a minute. Based on what the angels have already told Mary, based on the prophecy in chapter 1 that Zechariah gives, based on what the angels tell the shepherds in the next few verses, and based on what I've already told you about Jesus, this kid is the eternal Son of God, the Maker of the moon, the Lord of all creation. Why would He come to a people like this? Why would He come in a place like this? Why would the angels share this kind of message with these sorts of people? Further, why would Jesus come to preach to the poor? Why would He say later on in the Gospel that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head, even though foxes have homes? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Why would He live as a poor person? Why would Jesus humble Himself the way He did? Why would He go and and hang around sinners and tax collectors? The answer that we get from all over the Scripture is because He wants His people to follow Him. That's the answer we get. Why would Jesus humble Himself the way that He did? The answer we get time and time again in Scripture is because He wants you and me to go and do likewise. He wants you and me to follow Him. Jesus tells His disciples in chapter 9 of Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now what does it mean to follow Jesus in this way? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 about Jesus that though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled Himself. Now, why does Paul bring this up to the Philippians? Why does Paul mention this to the Philippians? What is he trying to get the Philippians to do? Well, he tells you in the verses just prior to that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Simply put, Paul's pointing to the birth, the coming, the ministry of Jesus in his utter humility. And he's saying to followers of Jesus... If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to take up your cross and follow Him, humble yourself like He did. Paul uses Jesus' humility as an example in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Now, what is he challenging the Corinthians to do in that passage? He's challenging them to give their money beyond their means. He's challenging them to give till it hurts as Christ gave until it hurt him. James references Jesus' teaching in James chapter 2 when he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? Now, what's James trying to get his audience to do there in James chapter 2, by pointing to Christ's own ministry, he tells you, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Emulating Christ, we don't 
treat the rich as being more important than the poor? Didn't Christ come to preach to the poor as well? Didn't God choose the poor to shame the wise? He says. Paul tells us again in Romans 15, chapter 3, Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Me. He uses Christ's humility again as another example. But what is he trying to get the Romans to do here? He says, Let, uh, to, to bear with the failings of those who are weak. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The humility of Christ is meant to spur us toward our own humility as we minister to those around us. On and on and on. These are just a few examples that we could give of the New Testament writers pointing to Jesus' humility and saying, go there and do likewise. We could go on forever that Christ's humility is a catalyst for our own humility. So the church believed that at least one of the reasons that Jesus came is so that we could follow Him. That we too would take up our cross. That we too would humble ourselves for our brothers. That we too would consider others' needs as greater than our own. That the people that belong to His kingdom would be a different kind of people. A people that emulate the Christ that they follow. But the problem is I really like righteous indignation Jesus. That's the Jesus I don't have a problem following is that one. I like to turn the tables over Jesus. I like the Jesus that is offended and has a right to be offended and goes in and turns over table. I like that. I don't mind emulating that Jesus. I like the, you know, I'll tell you what I really think kind of Jesus. That's the Jesus I don't have a problem emulating. I want to follow that kind of Jesus. But when it comes to considering other people's needs as more important than my own, that kind of Jesus, that's a tougher pill to swallow. When it comes to the giving till it hurts Jesus, now wait a minute. I earned that. I worked hard for it. It's rightfully mine. When it comes to the going after the poor and hurting Jesus, my response is usually, do you know what kind of choices they've made? They've made their bed. They can lie in it. Plain and simple, I would rather pick and choose which kind of Jesus I want to follow. But here's the truth that we have to come to realize. Is that Jesus did not stay in the stable. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sits at the highest place of authority. Christians that want to follow Him must emulate His pattern of ministry while recognizing His authority. Meaning that we don't get to pick and choose. It is all or nothing at all. It's giving everything to Him or giving Him nothing at all. It's allowing Him to use my life however He sees fit or it's complete and total rejection of His authority. There is no half measure. There is no in-between. You are either in His kingdom or you are out of His kingdom. See, Jesus came for a proper room, but it wasn't a palace, it was your heart. But Jesus is pushy. He doesn't want to dwell in a spare bedroom or in the hallways. He wants ownership of the house. 
He wants you to sign it over. He wants all the spare keys and the mineral rights to the ground too. You keep nothing and you get only what He gives you. But let me ask you, if you gave Him everything, what would change? If He was in charge of your finances, how would your generosity change? If He was in charge of your friendships, who around you would be encouraged? If He was in charge of your calendar, how many extracurriculars would get cut? If He was in charge of your marriage, how loved would your wife feel today? How honored would your husband feel today? If He was in charge of your employment, what coworker would hear the gospel since you no longer fear being fired? If He was in charge of your family, how much time would you spend around the Bible instead of the TV? If He was in charge of your house, how would your hospitality change? You get it? It's either all or nothing. We're either in or we're out. Either Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and we are His people, praising His name, rejoicing over the humility that He showed us and emulating His life and following where He leads and He commands, or we are saying to Him, go back to your stable, Jesus. You're not the kind of king I'm looking for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know my heart. You know that there are so many things that I'm guilty of. So guilty of giving you some and holding part back. We all are. The truth is that you're king over everything. There is nothing in this world that you don't rightfully claim mine. So Lord, it's not giving things back to you, it's surrendering a control we never had. It's stopping the struggle. So we pray you would direct us as you see fit. Direct this church as you see fit. Lord, open up doors for us to minister to all people, knowing that that's going to be messy and difficult and trying and stressful. But allow us to trust in you in the process. The ministry that we're soon to begin down at Wood Village, I pray for fruit there. I pray that the people that are there would hear the gospel, maybe for the first time, these children, that we would gain passageway into the homes that these children belong to. To, to the parents who maybe have never heard the gospel before either. Pray that we would see that kind of fruit.
that people who don't know you right now would come to know you. Allow us to do that. Give us, open up doorways into this community that we may go and emulate Christ there. That we may live as he lived. That we may give hope to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the blind, to those whose spiritual eyes are closed right now. Pray you would use us to open the eyes of the blind and give hope to those who right now are hopeless. I pray you would use our church to do that as we seek to emulate Christ here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.